Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode three of season three. This is like a lucky episode because we've got our three and three. I'm really excited because I have two guests. I turned the page on Daniel and I told him I wanted to interview him for this episode because he did something pretty cool that I'm excited that he can share with everybody about today. And he also brought a guest from Vanderbilt, Julia Rothschild, who also participated in this project that we're going to talk about today. But thanks for letting me turn the page on you, Daniel. I'm really excited. Well, thank you for allowing us to kind of share our experience. And before we get into it, um, just for everyone that may not know, I am an assistant professor at Vanderbilt University. Um, you know, I do some clinical work, but a lot of my work is also research-based. And um, so kind of want to give you that backstory. And I'll, I will let Julia uh, introduce herself and kind of talk about her, uh, where she stands in the program and just kind of her perspective on things. All right. Well, hi, I'm Julia. I am a current second year rising third year audiology student at Vanderbilt. And I was lucky enough to go to Poland with Daniel and two other students. So, yeah. yeah yep. There you have it. We uh, we were... Um, Kind of just kind of introduce what this episode is going to be about. We had the unique opportunity to join forces with uh, Northern Illinois University, their art of hearing program led by Dr. King Chung, uh, to travel to Poland, uh, Kharkov, and provide hearing and what we're going to be talking about, vestibular services to the Ukrainian refugees over there. And so we're, we have a lot of information to share. And so I will let Liz kind of direct um, kind of the questions and, and try to just uh, from the standpoint of what she's most curious about and what she thinks, thinks uh, all our listeners and the audience would like to hear about this trip. Yeah, selfishly, I feel like this episode is for me because I haven't had time to catch up with Daniel. And I was like, wait, we can just I'll just interview you. But I am super intrigued by this idea of going to different places to provide vestibular evals, because as far as I know, I think this is the first time that I heard of a group going internationally to provide vestibular. So tell me, how did this opportunity come up? I'm very familiar with hearing, you know, researchers and clinicians going to different countries and fitting hearing aids, but how did this opportunity get vestibular in the loop? Right. So it really all comes down to um, Northern Illinois University's Heart of Hearing program. Um, Dr. Chang has kind of done this and she's visited um, over eight countries uh, for, for the last decade, going to different countries, providing hearing services, collecting information on, on um, individuals in need. So, I mean, that program in and of itself has provided um, hearing services for over 4,000 individuals um, across many different countries. And I was fortunate enough as an AUD student there to go to uh, Australia as part of the trip in uh, 2016. And so as alumni, um, she invites, regularly invites, you know, former alums on these trips. And, you know, I, I, I thoroughly, I mean, I, it was the first trip that I had went on was, was, was absolutely amazing. So I always kept an open mind to go in again. And to hear, you know, they, they recently extended their services to Poland to help the Ukrainian refugees. And, and the first for the hard of hearing side of it, uh, for, for the hearing side of it, they were actually going over there and providing and fitting hearing aids on these uh, Ukrainian, on these refugees. So that was a first for them as well. So they, you know, 
they in in November of last year they started started these regular trips to Poland and Dr. Chang, you know, reached out to all the former NIU alum and I was like I would love to go and you know do my part, you know, and just provide what what help I can except you know, I don't even it's been several, you know, 5 6 years since I fit a hearing aid, so you know, I may not be uh, much help there, but is there an opportunity to, you know, provide some type of, you know, vestibular evaluation? You know, certainly I, I had an inclination that, you know, some of these individuals with hearing, primarily hearing loss, you know, a subgroup may have had, you know, dizziness and balance uh, problems as well. So, you know, we probably back in February or March, I had a case history form translated that uh, Dr. Chung was able to administer to um, uh, the refugees. And sure enough, uh, a significant amount of them were also experiencing, you know, symptoms of vertigo, you know, imbalance. And so I knew that there was certainly a need. Um, and then that brought us to, okay, how do we actually set this type of, of trip up? But as far as how did this come about, that was sort of how um, the initial opportunity presented itself. Yeah, that's super interesting. And like some of my initial thoughts, because I know we had chatted about this back in like probably March or April, my initial thoughts were like, it kind of makes sense that you can take vestibular diagnostics on the road. And it, in one way, it makes a lot of sense. In other ways, there's a lot of challenges. But many times I've always wondered about these trips because follow up with these patients is really difficult. But surprisingly, in vestibular, we are not used to having a ton of follow-up with our patients. We're there for diagnostics. So it does kind of make sense that we can still provide that diagnostic edge and not require a ton of follow-up necessarily. Yeah. So it kind of fits better than I thought once I started thinking about it. Tell me a little bit. So the other thought that I had immediately was about the logistics. So you've already talked about like case history form and the language barriers, but what were some of the other things, at least in preparing for the trip and setting up the logistics of the trip that you had to think about? Yeah. Well, uh, Julie, it was all smooth sailing, right? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, the logistics was, you know, was the other, the other hurdle and the other challenge. First off, first and foremost, I needed to see if this opportunity was even possible um, I initially envisioned, um, you know, going, you know, taking some audiology uh, students as well, potentially even a, uh, a PT colleague. Um, but of course, you know, there, you know, money makes the world go round to some degree, right? So there certainly had to be some type of uh, funding um, source. And, you know, uh, certainly, you know, I was, who do I know that, you know, <laughs> who may have, you know, some great connections? Um, so, Liz, you want to uh, take kind of take it away with with some of your support and inner acoustic support, yeah. uh, because this trip would not be possible really without the support of of inner acoustics and you um, to be able to help us with with everything that we needed to kind of go go abroad. Well, what's well, definitely not one place to talk about, but I will mention. I mean, I was it was I had to think creatively too because even from I mean, I obviously work for equipment manufacturer, but. I had just happened to see that DeMont, which owns Interacoustic, had um, a listing for their employees. They do a lot of um, donations, and a lot of times you can help you know, decide where the donations go. That's part of an employee benefit. So I'd happened to see that they were doing uh, relief for Ukrainian refugees, and you could submit grants. So like Daniel and I worked on a little grant together and got that um, through, which could provide funding for you and some students to go. 
And then from the equipment standpoint, I want to know a little bit more about what protocols you had in mind, but I helped secure some equipment for you to borrow and take along too, which, you know, our equipment is not all portable. So it, it definitely was a challenging thing, but talk to me a little bit about protocol or what your ideal setup was. Right. So what we wanted to do is essentially, you know, obviously we, we were, we're limited out in the field. And the two major questions that I had was, was, well, one, was there a need in this population? I kind of answered that um, with, with those translated case history forms, but I wasn't really going to know until we got over there and started testing. Um, the second question that I wanted to know was, was vestibular testing really possible out in the field? I, you know, I, I hadn't really heard, you had mentioned this before, but I too have never really heard of, you know, this, this type of testing being, being done out, out in the field. So that was the other, those were the, the two main questions that I had. And so I wanted to kind of come at it. How can we best mimic creatively, um, you know, a, you know, traditional vestibular evaluation as best we could. And so we did have uh, three, I guess, three general um, sections to our assessment. The first being just a balance assessment that consisted, a balance screening rather, that consisted of a modified cat sib. Um, for our foam, we always joke about this with the, <laughs> me and the students because um, we snag some pillows from the Lufthansa uh, flight on the way over there. So we often say that the, the trip was also sponsored by Lufthansa. So um, yeah, so we, we, we had some, um, some pillows uh, that they handed out on the flight that actually worked quite well. Um, so we did a modified cat sib, uh, followed by, uh, a sitting to standing, um, screening kind of fought, had, had the patient five times, uh, go from sitting to standing. If they were above the 14 and a half, uh, second cutoff, uh, we consider that to be, a, a like, a, an abnormal screening. And, um, you know, a lot of these assessments, we wanted to meet with our physical therapists at the Pi Beta Phi Institute. Um, Holly Cawthon, she's a vestibular physical therapist. She's absolutely wonderful. And so she gave us a lot of great tips along the way, especially when um, when we were, you know, counseling patients, providing them, you know, different translated handouts. And we can get to that. You know, we were able to kind of provide some VRT exercises, some balance exercises. So Holly and, and our physical therapy colleague was was absolutely a key component to this experience um so again yeah the first uh kind of phase uh consists that that was sort of the balance uh screening phase and then that's what kind of brought us into the equipment um that you uh provided and uh you know we we did have the the visual eye goggles that we were able to do an ocular motor screening so we did a, a bedside you know gaze you know you know, right, left, up, down. We did some saccade testing where we had the patient um, kind of bounce back and forth between our finger and our nose in different directions um, just to kind of look for any gross abnormalities. Um, and then we, you know, followed by a smooth pursuit. Um, and then what we ended up doing was testing VOR suppression. And, you know, again, you know, more creative uh, ways to go about this, but we ended up uh, putting the visors on, having the patient move their head from side to side, just checking to make sure that a VOR was present. And then we turned on the fixation light while we were having them do that. So um, just looking for a gross suppression of 
of the VOR. Um, and that kind of consisted of our second phase, so this ocular motility uh, phase. And then that allowed us to kind of move on to our uh, full vestibular screening, um, which was, you know, checking for spontaneous nystagmus, um, doing a, a bedside uh, head impulse test, doing head shake, um, doing a Dixall pike, uh, doing some positionals, and then um, finishing. Calorics, of course. <laughs> yeah, no, no calorics, no calorics on this trip, but yeah. uh, really just finishing up with uh, uh, dynamic visual acuity, and that was kind of our gross assessment of whether something yeah. was compensated or uncompensated. So I just realized I am talking too much. And I'm, I'm good. I know. <laughs> I've got this, Julia, from your yeah. perspective, because you were doing a lot of this testing. So just from a test instruction, like talk to me about some of the challenges, what went well, maybe what you would have done differently or what you changed throughout the week. Well, we did actually change things even after the first day of running through the protocol with a real patient. Um, we had obviously practiced on campus prior to leaving, just getting through the flow. But, you know, when you're hands on, you're in the field and you're in a different environment, that's not ideal for test setup. Um, we just even just swapped the order of our test protocol to make it more fluid for the patients because we realized, hey, we can instruct them, follow my finger, and then continue with one set of instructions for a few tests, which we thought that was time efficient as well as easier for instructing, especially with a language barrier. Um, over time, we also realized you can give patients instructions without using language. You can just say, watch me. I'm going to get on the pillow. Keep my eyes open. You know, giving nonverbal communication, especially with people with profound hearing loss, was a really beneficial way to, you know, adapt in that new environment. Um, and even just, you know, making decisions in that moment saying, oh, you know, right now, let's do a Fakuda as well for this specific patient based on their case history and what we're finding. Um, so, of course, it's challenging, like and you see any patient, but I think the more hands-on we were, the more experience we got and we're able to really adapt to a protocol that we felt was efficient, giving us the information we needed in a time-effective manner was challenging, but totally by the end, we got it down to a science. Yeah. And I think that really speaks, I mean, when you're put in these environments, you have to be so flexible with what you would usually do or say with a patient. It's It probably really develops your skills a lot more than you'd get traditionally in a clinic that's very controlled environment with all the equipment you need. So talk to me Specifically, you've already mentioned like grabbing the pillows from the airplane to use as foam. Were there any other limitations like performing positionals or hall pikes where you had to be a little bit creative, not having tables, et cetera? We used a table that was there. Uh, but I think something that we did when we first saw the space we were going to be in was figure out where we were going to do what testing. So where were we going to do the balance testing? All right, one spot right there. That's where the pillow will be in a chair. Then we'll have them move over to another section that had a nice flow so that it wasn't fully, you know, getting in the way of everyone around us. And then, you know, putting the goggles on, keeping the goggles on for the rest of testing to make it easy for the patient, easy for us. Um, and yeah, definitely not the most ideal, but you work with what you got and you were able to yeah, I feel confident in that way. Yeah. And so, I mean, the space that we were operating in was relatively small. Um, you know, there were, there were two small rooms and right in the center was this kind of a larger room where we were, where we thought our setup would be, or at least most efficient. 
Um, so there were certainly a lot of different stations going. There were 10 people that went on this trip. Um, so me, three of three of my students, and then six other audiologists, including Dr. Chung. So um, certainly there were a lot of, uh, there was, you know, a lot of back and forth. There was a lot of, we had to try to find ways where we were not getting in the way because people were going from hearing tests, patients were going from hearing tests over right to the end of the other table that we were doing Dick's Hall Pike on. We, you know, one end of the table we were doing Dick's Hall Pikes, the other end of the table they were fitting instant molds for hearing aids. So, um, you know, we had to try to maneuver and figure out what the best um, setup was. But I would say at, right after, you know, the first few patients, we were like, okay, this is kind of how the flow is going to be. Um, and then it kind of just took off from there. Luckily, thankfully, actually, our first day was probably the slowest day. I think we saw the fewest amount of patients that day. Um, but, you know, as we as we kind of trekked on towards the end of the week, um, you know, we were we were seeing quite a quite a few patients, you know, pretty, pretty back to back. And so it was it was nice that we were able to kind of figure out our space and our flow um, as we moved went on. I think we did chat like at one time right when you got back. And I think you had mentioned you had split up the vestibular assessment into three of those stations like you right. described. And obviously, Julia, you were one of a few students. So do you feel like having stations where a patient could go around was much more efficient, time efficient, or what was kind of your decision making behind doing that type of flow? I think it was just easier for us to break it up based on what we were looking at. So and also with the number of people we had, one student would be running the balance screening, then we would have another one take over for ocular motility, and then we could get the room reset up for the next patient. Um, I think it just broke it up nicely based on how many tests we were doing within each of those categories, but it also kind of gave us a time to be like, all right, this student is looking at the computer right now and just have a nice flow for us to document what we were seeing, and then you could start the next patient if, if there was one. Um, so... Yeah, I feel like just having the different stages was beneficial, similarly to for the hearing tests. And then they would go to get the hearing aids and the instant molding counseling. Um, yeah. Just That's nice. interesting. Yeah. And I've, I mean, it's not uncommon. I've heard of clinics that even split up vestibular testing like that or hearing testing like that, where, uh, you know, people will have their specialty or, you know, one audiologist will do the BEMPs and then they'll send along for the rest of testing. So I was just kind of curious what your thoughts were, because that's different maybe than how I was trained, where no matter what, it's you doing the whole thing. Do you feel like patients um, had any difficulty? I mean, not having the same provider going through those three stations, were there any challenges there? I think it was beneficial for us because we all got to be hands on in some way for each patient. Otherwise, there would just be one person taking you through and then a few others watching. Um, and I think it gave everyone a purpose to be involved with every patient. So it allowed everyone to interact with them for one and then, you know, counsel with them and, you know, really interact with them instead of just standing there and watching. Yeah. And, I, and I think really, too, from like a education, uh, clinical practice uh, perspective, um, not only, you know, were, were, was everyone able to kind of, we sort of introduced everyone at the beginning um, of the patient's appointment. Um, but then it also allowed, I think, for each student to get comfortable with their station. Uh, we, every student had the opportunity to um, kind of 
dedicate themselves to every station every single day. But within a single day, they were sort of assigned a, um, you know, they sort of picked and choose which station they wanted to be a part of that day. And by, you know, by the end of it, or, you know, it really allowed them to sort of, uh, you know, really get comfortable with a lot of the the bedside tests or, you know, really focused in on um, each particular uh, station uh, rather than, you know, going through the entire thing. Um, and I, it, it, like Julia had mentioned, it really just allowed everyone to be involved that was there. So talk me through after the patient went through these stations and you were to the point of diagnosis and counseling, how did that go? Did you have an yeah. interpreter there? How did, did you provide yeah. information? So we, we had as a group, all 10 of us, we had three interpreters. Um, and it was really called, you know, they were called on where needed most. Um, so it wasn't, um, it wasn't uncommon for us to start with an interpreter and then for them to get called to the hearing aid room, you know, while they're doing verifit or, or what, what have you. Um, and then a different interpreter show up in the middle of our assessment and just help out, you know, um, all of them were, uh, Ukrainians. So they all spoke the language and they all were able to. Um, accurately translate everything that we were, you know, conveying to them, especially, you know, really, Julia had mentioned that, you know, we sort of got in the habit of, and we got really efficient at, you know, giving instructions non-verbally, but, you know, at the counseling uh, part of it, you know, that's where we really needed the interpreters, especially if we, you know, had significant findings. And so, um, yes, we did have an interpreter for each, um, you know, patient when needed, um, that allowed us to communicate exactly what was going on. Um, we we brought you know images of the ear and you know wrote um, in Ukrainian on the sheet. You know the the the, the balance system. Well, we can get into we can get into <laughs> that. But um, the vestibular system and then the hearing uh, or the auditory system. And we really just tried. Um, to communicate as uh, effectively and clearly and, um, you know, just really ensuring that the patient understood the message and that it, nothing was lost in translation. And, and we felt like things uh, worked out actually really well. Um, one of the things about the, um, the inner ear balance system that we were quite surprised, Julie, do you want to share this story? I feel like it comes better from you. <laughs> yeah, so... Um, obviously, like Daniel said, we had three main interpreters throughout the week, and one of them um, just happened to frequently be our like, primary, I guess you can say, throughout the week. And I think it was like the second or third day, so yeah. like, like a few days in, probably halfway, we're, we had this nice diagram where we circled the inner ear and we pointed to the hearing organ versus vestibular and had um, one of the interpreters write balance hearing just to explain the anatomy in a very like vague way, essentially. And so we'd been just saying, you know, your balance system, blah, blah, blah. And she literally stops us one day and was like, are you talking about the vestibular apparatus? And we're, <laughs> we're like, yeah. And she was like, so if you say vestibular apparatus instead of balance system, people are going to totally know what you're talking about. And we were like, what? It was amazing. But you say that to someone in the U.S. where yeah. there are vestibular centers all across the country and people still don't even know what that means but if we said it in 
calling for all of these Ukrainian refugees. They were like, oh, totally. No questions asked. That's awesome. We were like, yep. clear accountability water like, there. Absolutely. Right? And as soon as you said that, counseling went so much smoother because there was less yeah. confusion. Yep. Balance can be a very vague term, but totally. Killer apparatus, it just, they knew. That's amazing. Well, Daniel, talk to me a little bit about, you know, how many patients you saw, what were some of the main diagnoses and or trends? And I know this will eventually, I think, be written up uh, for more details, but give us some high level what sure. you saw. Well, we saw 53 patients in five days wow. um, and six the first day. So, you know, 47 the other four days. Um, and I would say each assessment ranged as far as duration um, anywhere from 25 to 35 minutes, um, you know, to complete the entire assessment. Um, some patients obviously needed more extensive counseling um, than others. I want to say that we had somewhere that we designated significant cases anywhere from 35 to 37 percent. Um, and we designated significant cases being somebody, you know, um, had, you know, significant symptoms. They, you know, had they had symptoms of dizziness, they had symptoms of 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 balance or they had imbalance, um, you know, cases that we identified as, you know, having an a vestibular, a true vestibular impairment, uh, BPPV, you name it. So, or vestibular migraine. So we sort of designated that as what we would call significant. Um, I, I want to say that we had four, um, patients out of the 53 that we, uh, identified as having just classic vestibular symptoms or a vestibular impairment. Um, once we finished the testing, um, many of them actually was, you know, was on the, it, we ended up finding the impairment on the same side as, um, you know, their poor hearing ear, which was, which was nice, uh, confirmation. Um, we had three cases of BPPV, I believe. Um, we definitely had, you know, one or two central cases, um, that we weren't, you know, patients that we weren't even able to get through ocular motility. Um, and then we had a handful of patients that had, you know, you know, that we, that had significant imbalance. And so, um, I, I will say that that's number is probably, um, an underestimate just given that, uh, the sensitivity of bedside. So we didn't necessarily have all of the, you know, we didn't have V hit, we didn't have rotational chair, we didn't have calorics. Um, and so I'm sure that there were some that we, that we missed, but, the ones that we identified, I mean, we were, you know, cross-checking across, you know, spontaneous head shake, head thrust, um, you know, DVA. We were, we were certainly, you know, at least had, you know, uh, at least, you know, two or more, um, you know, clear vestibular signs that we were able to identify during, during the assessments in which, you know, for the patients that we identified an impairment in. Um, so I would say like, that's, pretty high level um what kind of our findings for the week on just those 53 now talk to me a little bit and maybe they didn't share as much of this information but functionally what were some of the activities that they were trying to get back to or were and maybe this is just my ignorance of knowing because there's such a wide spectrum of mm -hmm. refugees what they're doing but are many of them doing some sort of work back to work 
traveling, like still kind of being between countries? Like, is there, did you get any insight on what they were trying to get back to as far as activity? You know, I know at least many of them were not able to go back. Um, there were a few, there were a few that were able to, you know, get fit at least with, with hearing aids and, and, and go back to Ukraine. But many of them were at least here for, you know, a significant amount of time. Right. Um, you know, there were certainly those that, you know, worked in Poland, but, you know, as far as, um, you know, functional activities that they were actively trying to get back into, um, you know, not necessarily much um, detail I can provide there. Sure. Um, you know, it's, you know, Julia, any insight on on that? Yeah, I feel like we yeah. can get information for that, yeah. but the majority of the patient population that we saw, their goal is to be able to return to Ukraine when it's safe yeah. to do so. So this is 100% temporary for them. Um, and so many of them are experiencing mm. these symptoms. So it was nice to be able to help them in this temporary situation that yeah. they're in. Absolutely. And like you think, of course, hearing is the same way, but especially with dizziness or balance concerns, especially if you're a transient population and you may be moving in the future it is critical that you are not dizzy or not imbalanced because you're you have to take care of yourself to get yourself where you want to be. So I was just kind of curious if you had learned any more insights from that. Yeah. And you know what? Like this was also kind of our first go at it. I think I you know, this is a door that, you know, we opened and, you know, definitely want to continue to try and every effort to keep open um, just because of how successful, you know, this this first trip was um i will say that we had to sort of explain to them the purpose of the testing um you know many of them had or all of them actually you know had significant hearing loss and were coming there for a very specific purpose and so after that you know we we sat them down and we just wanted to make sure you know given the hearing loss we want to make sure that the the vestibular apparatus is now mm-hmm. is is working okay and so you know mo- once we explained why we were there and what we were doing you know many of them um you know were on board with with testing and so you know the way that this worked is it was advertised as as a hearing mission and so i i imagine that you know us also advertising you know, hey, if you're dizzy, if you're imbalanced, you know, come here, you know, try to, you know, see if, you know, if there's anything that we can do to help. Um, I'm sure at that point, you know, certainly, you know, we could, you know, s- certainly help more individuals or, or at least recruit or um, invite more, um, in, you know, refugees that have these specific concerns. Yeah. So I know you mentioned that you had given out, you know, specific PT exercises and handouts that you had got, you know, from Vanderbilt. Talk to me about, did you have the opportunity or did you want the opportunity to connect to other medical professionals in the area? Like normally vestibular audiologists, we may refer to neurology or cardiology or some of these specialties. Do you feel like you needed those connections or wanted them or made them? So of course, I mean, one of the, one of the main goals that we were trying to do months prior to this trip was trying to get in contact with a local ENT, local neurologist, somebody in the area. Um, Unfortunately, we didn't have much luck 
um, especially one that can provide, you know, services to the Ukrainian population. Sure. Um, and so we sort of went over there and we wanted to try to give them, you know, as much information as we possibly could to help them as much as we possibly could. Because, of course, we would, we would have definitely liked them to have some type of follow-up. Um, and so prior to the trip, we translated um, a bunch of handouts that um, our PT colleague was able to provide. She actually sat us down one afternoon and kind of went through, okay, this is how I typically counsel for VRT. This is, this is how I hand out these. Um, this is how I prescribe these exercises and which situations, you know, you know, just mainly, you know, you want to challenge the patient, but you don't necessarily want to put them at risk. Um, and so, yeah, I would say that certainly we, we wanted to, to have some type of follow-up, but we, there is an opportunity for us to go back here in November. So we'll at least be able to follow up with the, uh, refugees that we were able to test this go around. We're back in June. That's amazing. Yeah. And I think it's, that's not always something that we even get with our patients in a traditional clinic is the ability to follow up. So I think that's really nice and awesome. Yeah. I mean, it, one new very unique aspect to this is especially as an audiologist is and you know any audiologist that's really in the vestibular assessment arena is going to see a patient and then really never see them again unless they're you know repeat bpfb you know bpbb or some some something along that line yeah. um and i think it really gave a unique perspective um and a continuity i think you know, a complete spectrum of care um, that audiologists and audiology students rarely get to see. Um, you know, we certainly for for the VRT exercises, it was simple. The VOR times one, it wasn't anything that we were we didn't want any to give anything too complex at this point. Sure. Um, you know, for those that we identified clear impairments on, we wanted to give them just straight, um, you know, VOR times one exercises, which which you know, are, are pretty simple. We actually, Julia helped me laminate a bunch of little, uh, target X's that we were able to, to give to them, to take home, to do on, on, on their own time, you know, two to three times a day until they felt better. And so, um, my hope is that when we go back, um, you know, many of these patients are at least the ones that we, um, either gave VRT exercises to, or we uh, treated for BPPV, you know, hopefully they're doing much better this uh, the second time around. Yeah. No, that's amazing. And I think it's it's really cool to see and hear how the trip actually went. And, you know, it's pretty amazing how much of an impact you could make. I mean, could you imagine seeing 53 patients in one week yeah. at Vanderbilt? You get oh, my gosh. So tired. But, you know, that's pretty amazing how much you could make an impact on. And even if you just help one person, that's still yeah. incredible. I love that. Yeah. Talk to- oh, go ahead. No, I was going to say, I mean, um, you know, not only did this really have a clear, you know, philanthropic impact for them, but I think this really like opens and expands and really, you know, expands upon like what's possible in vestibular audiology, especially from an educational standpoint, um, you know, and, you know, research standpoint and, um, you know, I think it, it opens up a lot of doors just, you know, taking 
so often are patients coming to us for these tests not only are you know you know these tests hard to find um, and they're very niche and you know spread across certain areas of the country but they're always also just coming to us so you think about the types of patients that aren't coming to us you know the ones that don't have insurance or the ones that may not be as mobile um, and so to actually go to the patient I feel felt like it was a very, um, it just opened up my eyes, I think, um, to, you know, what's possible in this field. Yeah. I like also we talked tons about that on the trip too. how, you know, bedside testing is the foundation for all of the tests that we do at Vanderbilt and other vestibular clinics do. And, you know, you have all of this fancy equipment and that is ideal, but it's not 100% necessary to get some information. Obviously, it's not going to be as sensitive, but, you know, even with just a pair of goggles in one week, how much we saw um, across the world. But, you know, there's places in the U.S. that don't have major centers and it is so doable. And it also is just so beautiful to be able to help with that treatment aspect like Daniel was talking about. That's not something a student sees in clinic. We refer elsewhere, but the counseling and even just showing them how to do one of the exercises and making sure they physically right now can do it before they go home with their handout was such a unique experience. And like he was saying, it really broadened the idea of what vestibular audiology could be. And I think you, I mean, regardless, I think we're talking very all or nothing, even from an equipment standpoint, but there's many people who budget wise, they can't get all the equipment. So it's Absolutely. nice to be like, you don't have to do all or nothing with tests. Like, you can use what you have and fill in the cracks. It doesn't mean you can't assess balance because you don't have posturography. It doesn't mean that you can't assess, you know, whatever, because you can still do some of these tests. And it's really our job as a clinician and as an audiologist to still care for the patient with what we have. That's where our degree really matters. And, you know, equipment is a tool to be able to help patients, but it's not the only tool. It's it's your brain plus the equipment that Absolutely. makes it more powerful. Definitely. I mean, I feel like, I, you know, I... Def absolutely have a new appreciation for bedside testing um, after going on this trip because it was, um, you know, you're, you're out there, you're very limited and, you know, you had to make some clinical judgments based on the things that you've seen. So um, in, in a short amount of time. And so it, it was a very unique um, aspect of, of, of the type of, you know, a dairy, we think about bedside tests and, you know, we talk about how, you know, they're not as, of course, they're not as sensitive as some of our objective measures, but, you know, for some, they're be it's absolutely, it's better than nothing. And, yeah. and, you know, I was, I was cautiously optimistic, you know, going there, I was, I was a little nervous. I was like, is this, gosh, I hope I'm not like, you know, completely off here. And there's a reason why, you know, you know, there's not vestibular humanitarian trips out there. Um, but the very first patient that we saw, um, just a clear, right, uncompensated impairment. And I was like, okay, we're on to something. We're good to go. Okay. We're helping so, one person that, that's yeah. Not. yeah. So, and that being said, if you'll get a V hit for your next I know. I know. So yeah, I was definitely okay. Like, all right, that's a sign. We're, we're yeah. good to go. So just a couple of questions for each of you just to wrap up. So Julia, talk to me now that you've had some time away back from the trip. How do you feel like 
what's one thing that's changed either your educational perspective or maybe even future career goals from this trip? I definitely think my com- how comfortable I am in clinic and how I think about patients as a whole, especially for a balanced clinic, it's so much more enhanced. And I feel like I think deeper about all the specific aspects. Like the other week in clinic, I was like, you know, I want to do DVA. You know, like that's not something I typically, we typically would do in our test battery, but, you know, using what I've learned and how you really should adapt to each patient's specific needs and findings and how, yeah, we have great protocols, but it should be focused on the patient. And, you know, I feel like that is a big takeaway for me, but also that whole treatment aspect of wanting to either hear about the follow-up with patients. That's something I love about the other side of audiology is the continuity of care. And through this trip, I was able to see that within Vistib, which I really, really loved. That's amazing. Yeah. And I think that's an incredible perspective to be able to look at each patient individually, because I think it's easy to look at all patients the same, which clearly they are not. So that's awesome. Daniel, what about you? Do you feel like this has changed your career goals, your research focuses? What are your thoughts? You know, I, I, it's definitely related to, I think, my overarching goal in this field, and that's to, you know, I, I can't help but think about taking, going to the patient. You know, I think that kind of solidified, going on this trip really helped me solidify that. Um, there's certainly some some aspects of some of the other research that I'm doing in, in TBI that uh, falls along the same line of going to the actual patient. Um, so this this trip was a very nice um, kind of plug-in to that overall mission. Um, and so I, I would say certainly that that this trip has really changed my view on what's possible for this field. Um, I'm certainly one where I'm trying to see, you know, what, you know, how are, you know, what are some of the different ways that we can help move the field forward? And this trip and an example of what this trip means is a, I think has it all, Um, you know, and it, and it, and it really can in and of itself immediately push the field forward um, because we know that there aren't a lot of vestibular centers. We know that, you know, audiologists are few, few and far between and, and, you know, anything that can be done to serve more patients, I think would be beneficial for everyone. So, um, and really beneficial for audiology. Um, so I think uh, there are so many elements of this trip that, um, were unique and will is is an example of you know moving moving this field forward to where it needs to be absolutely no i i can definitely feel that just from talking to both of you that you both have been impacted by the trip and i think it's gonna affect our field for the positive so last question for each of you what would be one piece of advice that you would have for somebody that wants to go on a similar trip whether that's you know preparation, logistics, or even just, you know, confidence while you're there, what would be your piece of advice? We'll start with Julia. Okay. Two pieces of advice. The first, I rank and rolls. I know. (laughs) The first I would say is just like ask questions. This trip probably wouldn't have happened if 
Daniel didn't say, well, what about Vistib? What about balance? So, you know, there are many, I feel like, hearing-oriented humanitarian trips. And if you don't ask about Vistib, you'll never know if that was something you, you know, could have possibly done. Um, so that would be one, asking questions about if it's possible, but then also just asking questions to people who have gone. Something that we really were lucky with is that there was groups that have previously gone on this trip to Poland. So asking them questions about their experiences, what went well, what didn't go so well, what could be improved upon, um, just to, you know, understand what you're getting into and then so you can prepare accordingly. Yeah. Um, gosh, I have so many thoughts, but I'm gonna try to try to boil it down. So like if I could define this in one word, it's all connection. Like it's it's connection with other professionals, um, connection with the patients or the 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 people actually that you're that you're over there to serve. Um, and the other thing is like you know you learn you know of course we learn so much about everything that's going on over there in this current situation, but to actually hear their stories and talk to and understand the hell that they're going through it's like in that in and of itself is you know it really just puts things in pers- into perspective um and so you know a- yeah anyone who's interested in going or you know going on a trip like this go to you know different you know try to find those people that that humanitarian work um i know there's a conference coming up um i think in california maybe but it's uh, the Global Hearing um, Coalition. Um, so there's certainly a lot of um, humanitarian um, audiologists and humanitarian researchers that are at these types of events. So really getting into contact. Anyone's more than ha- welcome to contact me. Um, you know, it, it, certainly I have that connection with with Dr. Chung and her group. So there's 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 other groups from other countries like in Brazil there's universities in Brazil that have gone to, on this trip um there's just yeah there's there's so much um to do and then the other thing i would say is you know don't be it's okay just it's okay to take that leap you know um i was certainly nervous i had mentioned this before certainly nervous i was like why hasn't anybody done this like what is going on um uh, <laughs> but yeah what's the catch um, you know, if you feel, if you see an opportunity, um, to make this professional profession better, but to also make people's lives better, take it. Um, and chances are no one's just had the courage to take that. So, you know, certainly just that's, uh, would be my advice. I think it's amazing. And Daniel, I know I've told you this and half the reason I wanted to dedicate an episode to you is I think what you did is incredible, and I really do think it's paving the way. I mean, I don't know of any other trips that have happened similar to this. Maybe somebody will speak up and let us know if there will, is one that has. But even just showing that it's possible um, from a you know logistics, being able to actually provide the evaluation, provide the treatment, or some suggestions there, I think is a huge barrier to be brought down. And it's super humbling for us to be able to get out of our clinics and out of our comfort zones where we have all of our things, how we like it and get out and serve the population. That's why we joined this profession. We wanted to help exactly. people. And I think what you're saying is, is so humbling and you know helping a population that's 100% in need. And there's 
people even within the U.S. that are probably in similar situations. And so I think um, it's just amazing. And you guys should be really proud of yourselves for not only making the trip happen, but going and investing, you know, in this people. And hopefully it's the start of a a mini, mini. Yeah, I I really hope so again. um, And, you know, come check out, you know, either a AAA, we're hopefully going to kind of lay down our method, um, you know, to kind of lay the groundwork for anyone else who wants to kind of put something similar together. We're, we're hoping to dis- disseminate some of our method and just some of the things that we did and just share our experience really, um, you know, maybe at, uh, you know, some of the upcoming conferences. So be on the lookout for that as well. That's amazing. Well, thank you both for joining. Thanks for sharing your perspective. If anyone has any questions, feel free, of course, to comment or message us. We're now on YouTube, so feel free to comment on that video if you have any questions, or you can always send us direct messages on our Instagram account, and we will get back to you. And if you want to hear the perspective from Daniel, um, more in that teaching role, if you want to hear a perspective from Julia or one of the other students, I'm sure they will all be happy to share their experiences. So Check us out on Instagram or YouTube and feel free to leave any comments, encouragement, or uh, questions. So hopefully you guys have a great rest of your week and thanks for joining us. Thank you for having us.